Hello and welcome to The Bunker, the brand new politics podcast from the makers of Romaniacs. I'm Andrew Harrison. On this first edition, Insane in the Ukraine, Inside Donald Trump's Impeachment Trial, Keir Starmer and the battle for the Labour Party's future. And with a bad Brexit behind it, does the BBC have enough public support to keep the licence fee in place? All that and more coming up on The Bunker. So welcome to our first edition. We've been asking ourselves what Romaniacs about the Brexit would sound like and what better week to start than the week Britain leaves the EU. We'll be out every week by Wednesday lunchtime at the latest, so do subscribe to The Bunker on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We're setting ourselves the task of talking about Brexit as little as possible. You've already got Romaniacs for that, but we will have a few familiar voices and one of them is Roz Taylor, editor at Open Society and LSE Brexit. Hello, Roz. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. British politics has got awfully quiet since Christmas. Has, has the British public got politics poisoning? Uh, no, I don't think they got, uh, they've got politics poisoning, but uh, there have been two enormous stories that people love, i.e. Megxit and flu. So that's distracted. <laughs> people absolutely basically. love flu. The well, impending extinction of the human race is just great, isn't it? Let, let's just, you know, it's it's fascinating the thought that uh, it might come to Britain. And although people obviously don't want that to happen, it's in, uh, one of my principles of news is that a small, small portion of them does want that to happen because they want to see what it would be like and that's what makes news so compelling. Sorry. Yeah, I think there's, there's an element of what's it going to be like that actually, we're, we're mentioning Brexit within the first five minutes, aren't we? That was a lot of what drove Brexit. <laughs> Are we going to have to get used to a slower pace of news than we've had in the past couple of years? Though? Have we created a generation that thinks politics is by definition constant chaos and they're going to have a terrible come down? Well, I hope not because that would be the, la- the wrong lesson to learn from the last four years or so. I think we ought to be just as interested in politics as ever, and I hope we will be. The old adage about, you know, you might not be interested in politics, but politics is interested in you. I've got a suspicion politics isn't interested in me anymore. It's doing its own thing. It Spiralled off. It is. You just don't know yet. Also with us is Ian Dunst, the editor of politics.co.uk and author of the book How to Be a Liberal. Out soon. Hello, Ian. How are you doing? Hello. Yeah, good, good. So, I mean, this is, but let's, I mean, this is fucking weird, right? Like, I don't know how to sit and talk to you people without talking about Brexit. Like, I've never, I've never done Our it. Our social it glue like, has gone. What's that game, that board game where you're not allowed to say the word? Taboo. It feels like I'm playing taboo, basically. And oh. constantly I just want to be like, Brexit! R.I.P. <laughs> Nicholas Parsons. We can't talk, we can't mention uh-huh. Brexit at all. Right. That kind of thing. Um, yeah, we're, it's, we're like a bunch of people who've been trapped in the jungle trying to sort of look after one another and then suddenly we're, we've got nothing in common when we get back to civilization. <laughs> <laughs> So Boris Johnson's had to make two massive uh, non-Brexit decisions this week uh, to allow Huawei in to build our 5G network. And just before we started recording, the decision came through, yes, in the face of what Donald Trump wants. And the other is whether HS2 is going to go ahead. He didn't really get into politics with decisions, did he? (laughs) It's unfortunate, isn't it? Yeah. And the weird part is, like, I don't want this to be like the first point I make on this podcast, but... I mean, the really difficult part is D- Donald Trump is right, which is not... A, I don't think those words have ever passed my fucking yeah. mouth before. But you're, like, looking at it and you're just like, well, it's quite hard to argue against the proposition here. And, and there are other options for the British government. I mean, there are other providers of 5G. It was just more expensive. So they went for the cheap option in a way that genuinely can have really quite alarming security concerns way down the line. I mean, it won't be for, like, you know, 10, 15 years would have forgotten about this. You look at it and think, oh, that was a bad decision. The... Uh, the only thing that makes me marginally happy is it looks like he probably will go for the right decision on HS2, which is to do it. Yeah. So at least on that, it feels like there's there's some sense going on there. But at the moment, when it comes down to these major decisions, who would have fucking thought it looks like Boris Johnson actually has quite bad?
bad judgment. Do you think it's going to prove to be uh, a bad decision in terms of the the magical impending trade deal with America, which may or may not ever happen? Yeah, but I mean, the thing is, who gives a fuck about the trade deal? I mean, it doesn't add up to any part of GDP. It's about basically, you know, insofar as it would have an effect, it's basically just getting cheap agricultural goods into the country. I mean, obviously, when you're presented with something that's about the future of your technology, you're going to prioritise that. It's just that on the question of the future of the technology, they made the wrong call. What it is, it's a vision of the real world that we fucking live in, especially outside of the EU. Brexit! Sorry, I didn't mean to do that. But it's where big players like China, like the US, locked in a fucking trade war with each other, kick us around, going, do what we do in in terms of this war with each other, or else you'll be in trouble. And now he's suddenly having to make those decisions and finding out that there basically is no right one to make. Our special guest on this first edition is a real heavy hitter. Amy Pope is a former Deputy Homeland Security Advisor to Barack Obama. She's worked on everything from combating violent extremism to containing Zika and Ebola. She's worked in the US Department of Justice and as a US Senate counsel. She's now a crisis advisor to corporate clients and she's no stranger to bunkers. Hello, Amy. Thanks for coming in. (laughs) Uh, We're going to be talking in detail about impeachment in a bit, but I mean, soft liberals like us long for Obama and wish he was back. What what mistakes were kind of made under under the Obama presidency that let the kind of grievance presidency we have now arise? With distance, (laughs) that's a good question. Maybe these things that we did. (laughs) Well, you know what? I don't think we appreciated how far a president could push the envelope. Mm. So President Obama believed very much in building consensus, learning from the experience of others, gradually bringing about change, although he had pretty, you know, in some ways, visionary changes he wanted to bring about. But he believed that we needed to do it step by step and bring people with us. You look at this president now just sort of charging ahead without regard for norms, rules, and sometimes laws. And it does make one wonder whether we were a bit too cautious. You worked with uh, Obama on migration and the wall and overt hostility to immigrants are now central to the to the Trump brand. Are there any signs of the as the wall goes on not being completed and not being built? Are there any signs that the Trump base is kind of losing interest in this as their hot button topic, or does it remain the emergency uh, button to fire up the Trump base? I think you have to divide the base from the group of people who voted for Trump, who may have voted for Barack Obama in two thousand eight, mm. right? So there are different categories, and for those people who are truly hardcore Trumpites, um, they would continue to be very much in favor of the wall. They believe Mm. that immigrants um, are at the heart of their personal and um, societal problems, and they want to make sure that it is as difficult as possible for people coming from um, certain countries um, cannot get into the United States. But I don't think that's a hot-button issue for people who are more in the middle. I think they care more about health care, prescription drug prices, access to education. And for them, the wall is a distraction. Mm. Uh, As I mentioned, you worked on the US government's response to both Zika and Ebola. Do you think the Chinese government's response to the coronavirus outbreak is is adequate, travel bans, isolating Wuhan? Is it possible to make major efforts like this work in societies without open flow of information? No, I don't think it is. I mean, look, when we were doing the Ebola response, uh, President Obama very seriously considered shutting down all travel from West Africa to the United States. Ultimately, we made the decision that that was not the right answer, and for a number of reasons. One, you need to bring in healthcare specialists into the situation. Shutting down travel, shutting down information can actually make the situation worse. Mm-hmm. And also, it can push people underground, right? People are going to travel. Um, you might get some group of law-abiding people who won't travel, but there will be others who do, and you will have less visibility on those people when they travel, which means that the rate of infection could go unchecked for some time. 
time. So that's not the course of action I would advise. Tiny, tiny bit of Brexit. Tiny bit of All Brexit. Right. <laughs> if you insist. Yeah, go on. We're allowed. You, you did your senior thesis uh, on European Union migration oh, policy. Oh, I know you did uh, some research, yeah. We're professionals here. What did we get wrong? What With hindsight, what did Britain get wrong? Well, look, I mean, the the hypothesis was that it was going to be extremely difficult to come up with a common immigration policy because immigration is so central to a notion of sovereignty, and particularly in Europe where, I mean, in the United States or Canada or Australia even, you have a much greater sense of national identity that includes a lot of different kinds of people and traditions. But in Europe, that's not so. And so Getting at a common policy that hits so close to what a nation believes it's at its core, I saw something that was going to always be difficult to do and could be ultimately destructive to the union. And here we are today. Oh, when did you predict this? When did you pull your nostril? 1996. Oh, man. Why did you keep quiet about this? For God's sakes. Now, Donald Trump's impeachment trial could be over as soon as this Friday if the Republicans are successful in preventing witnesses from appearing, as has been their tactic so far. But revelations from a book by hawkish former National Security Advisor John Bolton that Trump explicitly told Bolton to keep withholding $400 million of security aid to Ukraine until officials in Kiev agreed to investigate Joe Biden have raised the prospect that Bolton could indeed be called. And if Bolton appears, why not others? Nobody expects the Republican Senate to remove Trump from power, but could the trial damage Trump enough to harm his hopes of re-election? Amy Pope, as a former member of the Security Brotherhood sorority, <laughs> how unlikely is John Bolton as a hero figure to Democrats as their kind of potential star witness? A hero figure, yeah. I think, may be unlikely. Anti-hero, <laughs> Right, exactly. But what the Democrats are trying to do, they know they're not going to win the impeachment vote. They're trying to show for the American people that this Republican Senate cannot be counted on to be a meaningful check on the president's power. And I think they are trying to distinguish this president's conduct from what would be sort of traditional Republican even conduct. So having someone like John Bolton, who is sort of the uber Republican, uber hawk, come out very publicly in opposition to the president is going to call into question those people who've identified as Republican hawks for some long period of time. So that the Democrats are just trying to make it difficult for Republicans to vote for this president again in November. It's odd the thought that impeachment could just be part of a strategic move rather than the big thing, the big final level in the game. Yeah, I mean, that that's a different story, right? I mean, that suggests that we are so um, polarized as a country that people are unwilling to look at the facts as they come in, that they've already made up their minds before the facts are heard. And you've heard that, right? I mean, you yeah. know, on the on the Democratic side, um, for a long time, they've looking been looking for ways to move forward with impeachment. On the Republican side, Mitch McConnell, Lindsey Graham, others made very clear that they were going to coordinate with the White House and that they were going to acquit this president as quickly as they could. So there's not even a pretense at a fair hearing here. Um, and so it's really about the election politics. British listeners may remember John Bolton chiefly for his kind of fairly obnoxious performance as George W. Bush's ambassador to the UN, <laughs> who would just turn up on the Today programme and say, yeah, we don't care what you think about anything at all. We're going to do whatever you like, whatever we like, and just suck it up. Um, but Trump has fallen out with Bolton enormously as he falls out with everyone. He's accused Bolton of lying to sell, to sell his book. Is this a ca another case of Trump judging people by his own standards? You know, I lie all the time, so that means everybody else would lie all the time. Well, I mean, look... I. 
at the very beginning, Trump was suspicious of Bolton simply because of his mustache, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's know? a really good reason. Yeah, yeah. 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 That is a fucked up mustache. <laughs> well, he is evil, Ned Flanders, isn't he? Really? <laughs> Is that really true, what he said that? Oh, wow. I didn't like the man because of his moustache. The president has a very well-known opposition to facial hair. I mean, that's just a thing. Yes. Uh I'm sorry, guys. You may not get a job I'm with him on the moustaches. I just just can't believe he went so extreme as to condemn beards as well. Ian and I are totally out of the White House. So (laughs) moving beyond the moustache, Amy, uh, where else does the antipathy come through from here? I think it's because the president does not want people who contradict him, right? He has a view of how things mm-hmm. should be done. He has a disdain for expertise. He has a disdain for experience. He has um, a very short attention span by all accounts. And I think he is just not tolerant of someone coming in and telling him how things should be. And, you know, that that's what John Bolton does. John Bolton does not pull punches. And so I think that he just clashed with the president. And it doesn't. You talk about just mentioning then the short, uh, the short attention span. This week's talk is that by commenting on Bolton's book at all, Trump may have blown the executive privilege that his en- that on which his entire strategy rests. That both he and all the other witnesses are covered by executive privilege. What's your take on that? I mean, it's quite a recondite legal point, isn't it? Well, yes, but look, the president is entitled to get advice from his senior advisors that's not subject to public scrutiny, right? Mm -hmm. Because you want presidents to be able to think through difficult and thorny problems without wondering if they're all going to be laid out bare for the public. So there is legitimate reasons to be concerned about privilege, but this president doesn't seem to understand the concept of privilege. He doesn't seem to understand the concept of classified information. I mean, again, he operates very transactionally. He's responding to what he's seeing in the news. He can't seem to help himself. And he doesn't have a lot of regard for what the long-term strategy is going to be. And that's everywhere. That's from the impeachment trial to Iran to you name it. Yeah. The wall. Amy, the Republican strategy has been to rush the trial through with minimal witness involvement. Uh, what is it, what is at the core of Trump's legal defence, though? Is it that I did nothing wrong because Ukraine got its aid in the end? Uh, is that any different from I tried to break into your car, but I couldn't, so no offence was committed? What's really going on there? I think there are a couple of things. One is he wants to deflect, right? This is about Joe Biden. Pay no attention to me. Look at Joe Biden. Look at Hunter Biden. Don't look at my sons. You know, right? Mm -hmm. That kind of thing. Don't look at my business. Don't look at the fact that my daughter is leading U.S. strategy. Um, Second... He's he's denying right that he's he's used this tactic time and again, whether it is about um, his sexual harassment of women. Um, he just denies, denies, denies until he's confronted with absolutely unrefutable proof. And then he denies it some more. So I think that's what we're seeing here. And he I don't think we'll ever see him say, yeah, you're right. That's what I did. But it was fine for me to exercise my presidential power that way. You do see that coming from some of the Republican senators because the evidence really is quite overwhelming. But I think if he he just won't admit it, that's just not his his style. But have the Democrats really established beyond doubt that the Ukraine drug deal, as Bolton called it, amounted to criminal conduct? Well, it doesn't need to be criminal, right? So that's the interesting thing about impeachment is that um, it is not a criminal process. There are no rules of evidence. There's no rules of criminal procedure. This is a high crime and a misdemeanor, whatever that means, right? And so it's ultimately a political process 
for the members of the Senate to decide whether or not it rises to the level that he should no longer be president. And there are obviously a lot of flaws in there. I mean, there's to me at this point, there is no question that the president's intent was to hold the financial assistance to Ukraine until they announce an investigation into Biden. That seems to be very well established. But it's up to the Senate to decide, is that enough? Mm. Is that a reason that he should not be president? And as we can see, they're quite conflicted about that, um, particularly depending on whether they're Republican or Democrats. You mentioned earlier that people's views seem pretty entrenched and that the impeachment process doesn't seem likely to make them change. I was wondering earlier, was it the same with Clinton's impeachment? Did people dig in and then not change their minds through the process? Or is it is it different now? Are Are views much more entrenched? It seems that views are much more entrenched. One of the key reasons for saying that is if you look at Clinton, the conduct there was arguably less problematic, right? Because it didn't involve taxpayer funds. It didn't even actually involve his role in his, you know, as the president of the United States. It involved lying in a deposition involving Monica Lewinsky. Mm -hmm. But the difference was... You had Tom Daschle, who was the leader of the Senate, cooperating with Trent Lott, who was the leader of the House, on a way forward. And from the accounts of the time, the two of them were really concerned about how this trial would impact the nation. And so you had them talking to one another on a daily basis. And even though they completely disagreed with what the outcome should be, they at least kept in mind what the process should be and how that could be done fairly. At this point in time, you don't have that at all, right? You have you, you have Leader McConnell openly saying he's cooperating with the White House. There's not even a veneer of objectivity, um, and that's significantly different. There have been these calls to bring Biden and his son in as witnesses in this impeachment trial, which seems to be just, you know, from this side of the Atlantic, just looks like an attempt to drag them into whatever mud bath is there and hope that, that, that some <laughs> of it, it sticks. sticks. Is yeah. there any a scenario in which Republicans are called as witnesses as a kind of quid pro quo for getting the Bidens involved? That's what they're going to try to do. If I, Particularly if I were in certain districts, um, Republican districts, that's what I would try to do. It's a dangerous strategy, though, because you look at this president and you look at the role that his sons are playing and you look at the, this president's continued interest in his businesses, that he's holding events at Mar-a-Lago, that he's going to many of his properties, he's effectively advertising them. Um, I mean, I don't think it's wise for this president to go down that road because he does not have clean hands. But don't we have a strange situation where for the, the, the voters that matter, the base and the surrounding base... They have an approach of like, well, it's kind of okay if Trump does it because Trump's Trump. Yes. But if other people do it, well, they're not Trump, so they can't do it. Do you see what I mean? The kind I of the, the corruption and the dirty dealing and the untruths are pri- priced in, right. and actually, possibly even for certain voters, part of the appeal. Yeah, you know, yeah, that's yeah. what I'd do if I was president. I'd show them. Is there any truth in that? I think there is truth in that. I do not understand why. You know, Trump famously said I could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and you know not get in trouble for it. I can't remember exactly, but that's <laughs> the effect of it. And for whatever reason, that seems to be true, right? There's so much 
evidence that would have brought down any other president, Republican or Democrat, paying off a porn star right there that would have killed any presidency, right? Do you remember that they one? They used to frown on that sort of thing back in the day. Yeah. I think right. Calvin Coolidge would have found it very difficult to extricate himself from that. Yeah, but yeah. Man. He paid a courtesan. I mean, does, does this... Um, you know, this is against the background of, uh, you know, search for a Democrat, Democrat candidate for the presidential election. Is impeachment helping or hurting the Democrats? And is it helping or hurting individual Democrats candidates? I don't think it helps anyone. Again, that goes back to as a political point, impeachment is not terribly helpful. Right. So it people want to see action. They want to know that you're passing legislation that's going to make their life better. They're primarily concerned about their bottom line. What does my bank account look like? What does my pension look like? Um, so in general, impeachment is not helpful, right? <laughs> Doesn't matter who you are. Um, but that said, there is, I believe, an institutional reason for them to press forward. You just cannot have the president withholding financial assistance that the, co the Congress has already authorized on his own, on a sort of what what was, I believe, effectively a quid pro quo. You investigate my political opponent and then I'll give you the money. You just can't have that, right? So regardless of whether it's politically expedient, if Congress is going to maintain its role as providing the institutional checks and balances on the executive branch of government, I think they had very little choice here. Meanwhile, back home, the Labour leadership contest is reaching a crescendo that will last from now until the end of March. It's a perma-crescendo. On the party's left... Is that left, what a crescendo looks like? It doesn't fucking feel it's, like it's it. Just, it's like the bit in Inception, you know, where the horns just go... <laughs> for about eight minutes. That's the perma-crescendo they're in right now. So on the left of the party, the period of reflection seems to produce the conclusion that everything was fine during the election. Defeat was all the fault of Brexit and the centrists. Jeremy got 10 out of 10 for leadership and Rebecca Long-Bailey is the way forward. On the party's not quite so left because nobody wants to be a moderate, much less an evil centrist, a consensus seems to be forming around a Keir Starmer-Angela Rayner ticket. Starmer remains the favourite, but a surge of new members since the election makes the result harder to predict. Now, apologies to Amy, there's going to be a lot of inside baseball here or as we call it here, inside cricket. Ian. No, I don't know what either of those sports are. are. <laughs> Couldn't give a fuck. So, Ian, we've seen Unite endorsing Long Bailey and, uh, mm -hmm. you know, moderates making inroads. You know, are, are moderates making inroads or is continuity Corbynism consolidating itself? No, I mean, it feels like it's sort of generally going in our direction. I mean, obviously we have Len McCluskey. Fuck, it's even hard to say his name. I mean, I watched him. You just feel like your your heart just shrivel up inside of your body, and you're just like, how long will you fucking talk your disingenuous dog shit for? And indeed, <laughs> he can do it for an incredibly long time. The the peak of which, by the way, was when he went for um, Bergen for the deputy leadership, and he said they were like, why are you going to go for Bergen? And he's like, because of his vision. And the reporter's just like, what vision? He's like, well, because of the vision. <laughs> so well, what's the fucking? Vision? But what the vision, man? I just told Visions you. Visions are like, by wow, their nature incredible. in kind of ephemeral, and they're kind of not indeed, really there. Yeah. Yeah, tangible, yeah. one might even say. Um, so, but I mean, nevertheless, it looks like I would say more moderate voices have a pretty good shot here. I mean, we've had uh, more YouGov polling. It seems to suggest quite well for Starmer. In a way that isn't very intellectually satisfying, he does seem to still be able to convince lots of the Corbyn guys that he's actually quite lefty and quite radical. Yeah. Whereas he can bank most of the sort of like slightly more middle class, cosmopolitan, remain centrist vote just because he was pressing, you know, for remain yeah. so hard for the last few years. He's got strong credentials with people like us. Plainly he does. And for good reason. 
And that kind of angle seems to be working for him at the moment. There's then the new members. I mean, we presume, we don't fucking know, but uh, there's good reasons to presume that they're mostly our moderate centrist comrades who have entered. Lots of them we think came in because of Jess Phillips. Presumably a lot of them will go for Nandy, but lots of those second preference votes would then go for him too. So at the moment, the strong money is on Starmer. And I think we, we'd have good right to be bitterly disappointed if it didn't work out. That way. And he's been really overt about saying, I'm not going to criticise either the Corbyn uh, moment or the Blair government. I'm not going to criticise anybody. Yeah. I'm here for everybody. Is there a point at which a leader of the Labour Party is going to have to bite the bullet and say, the past five years were not us at our best, lads? This is what I just sort of feel... I mean, like, I really like Starmer. I mean, I'm not fucking, you know, I thought he's really good. He's smart. I, I don't, he's not a charisma powerhouse exactly, but, you know, he still looks professional. He looks competent. Fine. Um, I sort of, I've got to say, like, I don't, I, I get it. I get the strategy. I do kind of want a bit more balls, if I'm honest. Like, is it just like, well, you've, at some point, the, the voters have just said, mm. not this. Very, very fucking hard, not yeah. this. You sort of, as a party, need to show that you heard it. You know, if there's just no volume on you about about looking at yourself and addressing yourself in that way, that seems to me to be problematic for strategically, but even kind of morally, you know, like you yeah. need to have that conversation. And clearly he's not going to do it, or at least if he's going to do it, he's not going to do it now. And if, of course, if he does it after he wins the leadership, you're like, well, that was a bit of a dick move, man. <laughs> I mean, you, you basically missold this entire I'm all for dick moves at this stage. Um, <laughs> I've got to ask, though, because there is, you know, by not criticising the, 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 the Corbyn approach, is he kind of sewing himself into the same sack that Ed Miliband found himself in, that by not being able to point to the achievements of the last Labour government, we did these things, here's a list of stuff that actually happened. You don't, you don't have a CV to put in front of the electorate. Here's what, uh, here's what we achieved. And he seems to be, is he, OK, it's very early days. He, he will, I think when he, you know, if he becomes leader, he will definitely start saying good things about the new Labour period and blah, blah, blah. The, the concern, I think, is like a slightly deeper one along the lines of what you just said, which is, could he end up in this sort of Ed Miliband kind of vacillating stage, that kind of leadership where you're not really one thing or another, you know, Ed Miliband, obviously policy wonk supreme, clearly loves immigration, but needs to show that he's just a good old normal guy with legitimate concerns about <laughs> immigration, so he's going to make a mug. And you just get frozen because you won't really take a stand. You get frozen in that sort of half space and you come across as inauthentic. And if this kind of leadership campaign is indicative of how he would do the leadership, I think that would be a very big concern. And equally, I think there's a big danger in doing what Richard Bergen is doing in an article he wrote for The Guardian Bergen? yesterday. <laughs> yeah, I am dissing Bergen. Is that all right with you? <laughs> On the first show. Yeah, I think it's a big... Pre- <laughs> Very disappointed in you, Roz. <laughs> the problem, the thing that he is trying to do is to say... Um, I don't think the leader or the deputy leader, when I become deputy leader, um, I Becky and me, I don't think we should have policies. Uh, we should uh, we should ask the membership what our policies should be. Mm. I don't flipping want to hear that. I don't know if I, maybe the membership want to hear that, but I don't believe it. I think they actually want some direction. And I mean, it was terrible because the worst thing that it was a bad article in many ways. But the worst thing was when he said, "I want to be the new John Prescott." Now you fucking know wow. there are there are many political you know inspiring political figures in British political history, and 
and then there's John Prescott, you know, or, or Lord, the Lord Prescott, as yeah. I believe we call him now. Um, he because he fig- he wants to go out and organise and take a pledge card round the country. And if he becomes deputy leader, he's going to visit all the seats that Labour lost in the in the first month. Um, sorry, first two months. I think oh, I can't one or the other. First six his, months. Per- take, yes. No, no, no. It's, it's a very short time. Basically, it adds up to two seats that Labour lost every day. It's all going out. It's all listening. It's all learning. I actually get some flipping policies and ideas there, not listening. That's a bold thing because politicians would all say, well, it's the most important thing is to listen, isn't it? Are you saying that... No, it, is, that it isn't. That's not what people listening. want. Do no. some telling. Do some telling, yeah. What do you think about Starmer's Federal Britain? Well... You know, I, I, I agree with it instinctively. Um, yes, power should be devolved to the regions. Yeah, absolutely. But you've got to ask yourself, what powers? And he didn't actually elaborate much on that. You've also got to ask yourself, who's going to be making the decisions? Are you going to expand the roles of the Metro mayors, people like Andy Burnham and Andy Street? Or are you going to set up a whole new structure like they tried to do with the police commissioners where you elect new people and you say, look, this is a new senior person in your community and people are actually totally uninterested. Mm. You've got to decide what it is you're going to devolve, how much money they're going to have, what what, what they're going to be able to do and who's going to do it so that it doesn't become a gravy train for ambitious local politicians. And so you're really at a very early stage of thinking about federal Britain. If Starmer wins this, What's going to be the bigger battle for him, Boris Johnson or the kind of rearguard civil war within Labour? Because if he wins this, there'll be a large chunk of people within the Labour Party who are very unhappy about this and want their party back. Well, they can leave it then. I mean, I think his biggest task will be taking on Johnson. Mm. There will be an exodus and that will be a good thing for him. What have we learned about Rebecca Long-Bailey in the past few days? Uh, not much. Because struggling it, it, here. Yeah, it's it's it, as, as campaigns go. She's very visible. She's around a lot. You see her. She took drugs in Amsterdam. Okay, we've got that. Any yeah. more flesh on yeah. the by those no, no, particular no. policy bones? She, she, she went to Amsterdam, and that's all she's saying. Oh, she didn't right, actually yeah. say right. that she took drugs there yeah. because you still can't say that, Ian, unless you're you, obviously, on a podcast. and you're not a politician. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. Really I mean, regardless of her politics, the the, the, the one that bubbled up this week was her kind of memory of the of the actual election night herself, where, where she describes her shock and then her immediate conviction that everybody loved the Labour Party and the People's Republic of Salford and therefore the idea that people <laughs> rejected socialism was bollocks. It does seem to be that the bubble is very strong around her. Yeah, well, it's comforting. I mean, the Labour Party has just been punched very hard and it's clinging to what it knows and what it feels safe with. Um, I think it will be a while before Corbyn loyalists feel able to place their trust in anyone but Long Bailey because she seems like the natural successor but that's that's coming from within the party, that's not an indication of anything outside it. Amy, do you look at this and go, oh my God, look at the state of progressive politics on that side of the Atlantic, there's our future on on your side? Because I mean, the, the Democrats are sort of Many people feel they're embarking upon a similar kind of Corbyn road now. I think that's what President Trump wants people to feel, mm. um, right? He will notoriously um, cite AOC as if she were the Speaker of the House um, when she actually has relatively minimal power. But the reason he does that is because sort of middle America is afraid of her and afraid of her mm. politics. So I don't actually think that the 
Democratic Party is heading in that direction. But there is a very vocal um, sort of lefty side of the party that that does have a voice. Um, and that's what the Republicans want you to see the Democratic Party as being. Trump also takes an inordinate interest in our Sadiq Khan, who here is like kind of middle of the road, boring guy and <laughs> is presented by Donald Trump as some kind of, I don't know, verging on the Islamic extremists. It's so bizarre. I mean, it, it it highlights a couple of things about this president's character. One is that he just cannot resist hitting back on anyone who is the least bit critical of him, no mm. matter whether that person is any meaningful threat to his power or presidency. Mm. The other, I think, really highlights that whether he's um, an Islamophobe or whether he's just found such support from that community, he's, I mean, he presses that button over and over again. Right now in the U.S., there's another talk about, there's more talk about another Muslim ban. I mean, mm-hmm. he just, you know, this is where he gets a lot of his energy. I hate to say it. So going mm-hmm. after the mayor of London is just a great foil for him. I love the way you describe Islamophobes as a community, like they're all like bringing dinner around to each other's house. They might be. Feeding each other's Lemon cats. drizzle. Absolutely. Lemon, lemon drizzle cake with a horrible slogan on top of it. Can the Democrats learn from what's happened to the left here? What are the things that should be pointed at? Look at this. I mean, look, I, I'm I'm very hesitant to speak too much about what's happening here, right? I am I am new to your country. I've only been <laughs> here two and a half years. But what did strike me as very very puzzling is that the Labour Party proceeded when they had someone leading the party who was so deeply unpopular. I heard anecdotally, I'd rather have Brexit than Jeremy Corbyn. That to me, that that sort of persistence was someone who was clearly not representing, at least from the outside, the, the majority of the party seems like a big mistake. And I think that's the issue that the Americans are going to have in the U.S., right? You have someone like Bernie Sanders. He has tremendous popularity, but with a very small um, sort of overall slice of the population. And putting Bernie Sanders into a contest with Donald Trump, I think, is going to be disastrous for the Democrats. Who can you see giving Trump a big, strong handshake in the in the Rose Garden? Starmer, Long Bailey, Nandy or Thornbury? I I'm dare, a lock in the door. I dare not, I an dare answer, not that. answer that one. <laughs> <laughs> Can they boycott it? I don't know. <laughs> the, whichever one of them it is, they right. will boycott yes, it. So, exactly. Yeah. Finally, should we enjoy the BBC while we still got it? Decriminalising non-payment of the licence fee was among Boris Johnson's first priorities when he came into government. Foaming, blood-streaked attack hound Nicky Morgan, now <laughs> Baroness Morgan of Coates to you, proles, has warned the corporation that the licence fee has come up more and more on the doorstep, totally unprompted by the Mail on the Sun, of course. Now even gilded centrist dad role model Gary Lineker says the licence fee ought to be voluntary. That's a great idea. Perhaps there could also be a BBC Patreon with a free coffee mug. And the BBC is making no friends by closing the Victoria Derbyshire show, one of few that really does reach excluded viewers, while cutting news and current affairs at the same time. Ros, this one comes around every few years, but this time it sounds a lot more real. The most anti-BBC Conservative government yet has total free reign to do whatever it wants. How endangered is the BBC? I think it's going to come under a lot of pressure. I think a BBC still does, despite cutbacks, an awful lot of things. And there will be huge pressure to at least cut, if not abolish the licence fee in the next few months, I think. Making the BBC a subscription service is pretty much conservative mainstream thinking now. What what what, what would that BBC be like? Is it going to shrink down to BBC News and, uh, you know, Sunday night Dickens drama and that's basically it? 
Well, it would have to, because one of the big problems is that more and more people do not trust the BBC at all. Actually, if you look at the latest YouGov, the number who don't trust it at all jumped from 14 to 20% between October and December just last year. So it is wildly, you know, far, far more unpopular than it used to be. And the unpopularity is accelerating. So you have to ask yourself, what do you do you actually break that mission that the BBC has to educate and entertain and inform? And do you now need to break that up? Now, I actually think that you do. Because I think you're, now is time, unfortunately in many ways, but now is the time to break off the entertainment bit of the BBC and probably reduce the licence fee and put that money into the news and also you know, fund Channel 4 and so on a bit more as well. But focus the BBC's mission on news because I don't think it's sustainable anymore when you have such a vast choice of entertainment that people have. It's a very different landscape of entertainment mm. than it was when the BBC was founded and in the 1930s and so on. It's, it's, it's transformed. And when you ask yourself what people actually are willing to pay for, they are willing to pay to be entertained, but they don't like what the BBC is doing at the moment because it's either in the case of people like Remainers making them depressed or in <laughs> the case of Brexiteers <laughs> yeah they think they they think it's um, they think it's too uh, too biased towards the left wing so it's not pleasing enough people and uh, to pay for it and sustain it in its entirety out of some sort of guardian style uh, membership or subscription model or you know give us money please we're good Ian the usual snappy rejoinder is well they should just fund it like Netflix well, we get amazing stuff on Netflix and it only costs £6 a month why can't they fund well, it speak like for yourself mate most of the stuff I see on Netflix is fucking shite well um, <laughs> voice okay. on the street there so no well I mean it, it, you know it is it's like fucking trawling through like a fucking BP garage in a Suburban town. I mean, it's just like you're just like I'm not going to fucking watch this. I'm not going to fuck. And now everyone's going, oh, watch Witcher. Have you fucking seen five minutes of that shit? And not, what the fuck? If you want an argument for keeping the BBC, watch five minutes of Witcher. That will do. That will do you. Ultimately, what they're saying is get rid of any idea of public broadcasting. Mm -hmm. What they want is not. Do they talk about Netflix because it just makes everything sound new and fresh and digital? But Netflix what has they no new service, no radio, no sports, no regional stuff, no continuing rolling uh, news, entertainment and information website. It doesn't do any of the things that the BBC say. And yet a Tory MP will pop up on the back bench and say, well, they, you know, Netflix can Netflix does Sabrina the Teenage Witch. Why I, can't I, the BBC do that? The thing is, I think you almost give the argument too much respect by even putting it that way because the truth is that it's just their way of saying we want to privatise the BBC in a way that sounds fresh and millennial and, and blah, blah, blah. You know, that's, that's ultimately all it is. And the reason they want to do that is because, you know, the Conservative Party ideologically has always been in pretty much exactly the same place. So the free market mechanism works and anything that's publicly funded doesn't work. Now, they know where not to say it. You know, they've learned over many years, don't fucking say that shit when you're talking about the NHS because it'll come back and hit you in the face. But they know that you can just about get away with it at the BBC, which is another classic British institution based on those old ideas from, you know, way back in the sort of Keynesian era where maybe there was something, some stuff that would correspond to where there's market failure. The thing that's making it very hard to defend the BBC is that especially the news has just because you're under attack by all the worst people doesn't mean you're not fucking up. They have done the same thing the commercial sector has done of 
I mean, which is absurd for me to fucking say because it's half the way that I make my career, but of basically going for punditry rather than investigation. Like you get an investigation team, it takes them time, man. It takes fucking time for journalists to work on stories. It takes months. You fill up six six minutes of fucking screen time afterwards. Mm. You get two pundits in, you pay them two, three hundred quid, sit there, they'll fucking shout at each other for a while and you're done. You spent, what, 500 quid and you've got six minutes of fucking screen time. So now they do it and who do they pick? You know, the biggest pineapples in the fucking world, you know, the Frank Mansois of the world and just have the pineapples throw their own shit at each other for a while. And you're like, cool, we filled up some time. And you think this is the stuff the commercial sector is doing. So the BBC itself is failing in those functions that it has. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't keep the functions. The problem is the BBC needs to commit to them rather than drifting away from them. Amy, as an outsider... <laughs> I feel like I just talked for a very long time. <laughs> Pundits, who needs them? Um, <laughs> as, uh, as an outsider, somebody who's been in this country for... Not that long. You, you, do you see the BBC as as a weird anomaly, as a jewel in the crown that we should die in a ditch for? I mean, American public service broadcasting has its drawbacks, doesn't it? It's, it's quite elite. It's quite tiny. NPR is really, really aimed at certain parts of Marin County and not not many other places. How do you see the BBC yourself? Look, I love the BBC, but I'm still in this honeymoon phase with this country where everything about the UK is quite charming. Yeah, that's right. So- <laughs> and you've been here for the last two and a half years, you say. Yeah. Incredible. <laughs> so I am, there, there is a lot of BBC content, much, much, much more than I would have anticipated before I came to the country. Um, but but look at, like, it's very difficult in the United States to get straight news. You have very politicized, partisan news channels. And your best bet is to get your news through print, in my opinion, rather than going to TV. And I think that BBC Radio and BBC News services are quite good. And frankly, I just loved, you know, a lot of the BBC dramas, Fleabag and all that. <laughs> I just love them. And you don't get that kind of content in the United States. You didn't get the culture shock that all American uh, sort of immigrants get, which is, oh, my God, it's not like Downton Abbey at all. Uh, <laughs> none of them live in stately homes. What the hell is going on? Well, but there is still a bit of Downton Abbey, which, thank God, I watched it so I could understand it. The sort of, you know, distinction between classes and, yeah. you know, that mm-hmm. still is... That's a whole other podcast. Right. Well, I mean, you know, mentioning a bit of partisan news in the United States, Dominic Cummings' New Frontiers Foundation back in 2004 called for a campaign to target the BBC and for the creation of a British Fox News equivalent. How, you know, is this the kind of society that's susceptible to being transformed the way Fox transformed the United States? Yeah, look, I think Fox News appeals to a contingent in the United States population that is similar to one that's here. And I think we saw it play out in the election of Donald Trump, and we've seen it play out in the um, B-word discussion, which I think I'm not supposed to refer to, <laughs> right? But but I think you'd find an audience here, and I think it would be receptive. So um, I would not take my eye off that ball. Mm-hmm. We will definitely be returning to this one as, as the year goes by. But I think we could agree on one thing, which is the BBC needs to stop making podcasts Get off our lawn and stop plugging them on the radio at all times. <laughs> and that's the end of the first edition of The Bunker. We hope you've enjoyed it. We'll be out every Wednesday morning, so don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or whatever your favourite podcast app might happen to be. Before we go, every bunker needs a way out. So we're asking <laughs> the panel for their escape routes from the pressure cooker of politics. What books, films... TV, magazine stories, music or miscellaneous are raising their spirits and or horizons at the moment. Amy Pope, what's your escape route from politics at the moment? I'm embarrassed to admit this, but this is sort of a good combination of BBC and Netflix. Um, I've discovered Poldark. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> and then fat, fantastic Irish actor Aidan Falk, I think is his name. Mm. <laughs> so that is great escapism. <laughs> what is it that's so uh, kind of wonderful and magnetic about Paul Dark? Because this is this is basically our Sunday nights forever in this country. The kind oh, of I love sinking it. feeling about God, we're, we're on another three-masted sailing ship, and it's the Oneidan line all over again. Exactly. What? Well, look, fantastic landscapes, right? It's it it takes place on the uh, Cornish coast. Mm. Beautiful actors, period pieces. It's a bit over the top, so you can't quite, you know, lose sight of the fact that it's a bit of a fantasy. It's just so much fun. <laughs> and that would, that would take your mind off politics completely. Absolutely. <laughs> Ros, how are you taking your mind off the contemporary horror show? Well, I've been doing a bit of baking, actually, which I haven't had time to do. I haven't had time to do for ages. And last week I made a cake and it was really nice and pleasurable. It was a really tasty cake. It was um, actually an Ottolenghi one. I don't normally have much time for Ottolenghi, but I've got more into him recently. It was an apple and um, um, olive oil with maple icing cake. And it was really very good. And that felt good. That's the kind of... (laughs) Quality great British bake-off content that Amy in particular is here for. <laughs> Ian Dunst, what's your escape route from the wonderful and frightening world of politics this week? Well, it's weird because it doesn't sound upbeat, but it is basically... Uh, so this morning, um, they confirmed that Nicholas Parsons had died. And so since then, I mean, when I was sort of coming here, I just started listening to old um, Just a Minute. I don't, have you come across Just a Minute yet? No. It oh, is, it is, a, it is I think, like probably the perfect panel show. And the idea is basically you talk about something for one minute without hesitation, deviation or repetition, which is a surprisingly difficult thing to do. Like we've been trying to do and failing with Brexit. On <laughs> right. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. indeed. Yes. And um, so I think he was he was the host of it, I think, since 1960 something and yes. barely missed an episode. Yeah. Um, I used to listen to that program, you know, in the back seat of the car with my old dears when I was a kid, like when I was sort of eight, you know, seven years old. I remember it from like, some of the earliest memories I have of listening to the radio. And I listened to it throughout as an adult. So obviously you have some sadness that he's gone, but also, you know, someone in their mid-90s, you're, you're not, it doesn't feel like a, a, tra- a tragedy has, has happened in that way. And I was just sort of thinking about what is what is it and what's just so pleasant to listen to. And I can already tell I'm about to just fucking listen to that shit like for yeah. days now. And I think it's something to do with this combination of like, he's he's acidic, but also very gentle. And he's the straight man, but he also does the gag. Yeah, he's his own straight man. He's yeah. One of the wonderful things about him. And so professional, but then also like so genuine. And you just sort of think like, what a good career, which I know doesn't sound like the loveliest thing to say, except you're just like, what a good career in broadcasting you've had. And it yeah. makes me happy that you did that and you brought something to my life and a sort of sense of consistency with the past and with my own childhood. So actually it is... It is giving me joy, even though it's basically connected with the death of someone I really admire. And in a lot of ways, it's the best of England, really. You know, the, 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 all the things we admire, humour, but also warmth towards people, you know, just a consistent unflappability. Mm-hmm. 96 as well, good innings. Man, that is a good innings. <laughs> and, and no one deserved about, it more than you know, him. 60 or 70 years of those were, were, were mm-hmm. working hard. Fantastic. Well, my escape route... It comes around every three or four years. There's a Pet Shop Boys album out. <laughs> it's middle-aged, middle-aged raving. The new ones, the new ones in Berlin, and it's very European, so it does connect. There's a bit of European tristesse going there. Uh-huh. The album is called Hotspot with multiple meanings. Obviously, Planet Earth is heating up, but also Wi-Fi hotspot. And hey, let's go to the hotspot for a bit of dancing. So as usual, <laughs> and Neil Tennant is now. I think he's 65 now. Holy shit! And still, you know, maintaining a connection with all of the things that make life wonderful. You know, love dancing little bit of kind of uh, mm-hmm. little bit of a twinge of sadness here and there and it's just great it's just and it just it takes my mind off the world of politics for five minutes 
or 40 minutes, actually, which is quite good. <laughs> and that's the end of the very first edition of The Bunker. Thanks to our regulars, Ian Dunn and Ros Taylor, and thanks to Amy Pope. Um, are you back to 24-7 impeachment watching now? I am. With a huge thing of popcorn. <laughs> with a little bit of Poldark in between. Impeachment and Poldark. <laughs> what, uh, what, what's, what's the big thing we should watch for in the next couple of days? What's going to be the inflection point? Is it John Bolton it's turning up? It's, it's, they need to make a decision whether they're going to allow any witness testimony, and we don't yet know where the Republicans are going to land, right? Therefore... Mm to watch and that could change the outcome of all this can i get a witness well thanks for coming in please do (laughs) come in again Uh, we'll be back next week subscribe to the bunker on apple podcasts or elsewhere and follow us on twitter at bunker underscore pod we'll see you next week cheers and bye-bye the bunker was produced and presented by andrew harrison with ros taylor and dean dunt Audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.